Open your Bibles, if you would, Mark chapter 1, Gospel according to St. Mark chapter 1. We're uh, continuing in our study of Mark's Gospel. Uh, last week, we observed how Mark's Gospel is written to a mind of action. Everything about Mark's Gospel is action. The terminology is action. The, the things he talks about are actions. Its content, even its writing style, is all oriented to this primarily Roman mind, very action-oriented. And part of that, we noted last week, was the emphasis on getting obstacles out of the way, clearing the way so Jesus could move forward. That's that word immediate that we looked at so carefully last week. Immediate, not so much in the sense of time, but in the sense of a clear path by which he could move forward, right? So we're going to pick up the account uh, at, at, at a point in this, this morning in the text we're looking at where Jesus' ministry is just coming up to speed, right? Um, we're going to pick it up where he is really engaged in ministry and it's all starting to happen. It's after the baptism of John, which of course identifies him as the Son of God. It's after he's called his first disciples. It's as he comes into the town of Capernaum. So let's just pick it up. Chapter 1, which I turn there myself, chapter 1, verse 21. Mark writes, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And just then there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere and all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after that, they'd come out of the synagogue. They came into the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was laying sick with a fever and immediately spoke to him about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray simply, Father, that our minds would be clear this morning to hear from you. That's all we want, Lord. We want to hear from you. We don't want to hear from man. So what is said, Father, we pray that it would convey the truth of your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I noted last week and again this morning, we're at the point where Jesus' ministry is starting. This is the, you know, Houston, we have liftoff moment, right? Things are really going, okay? His baptism, again, clear indication of who he was. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. The Father said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So his, his identity is established. His ministry, his mission is established. Said in verse 14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Preaching the gospel, that's, that's the job, that's the mission, he's identified that. And his methodology has been identified, he's called the disciples, those he will teach to follow him and carry out the task of preaching the gospel. So with all that in place... He starts, we're at that moment, and he steps into the synagogue in Capernaum, which was the small fishing community on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and in what happened, he does two things, two critical things happen in these verses 
And um, in each one of them, two things happen. We want to focus on that morning. Now, in a way, these two events that we just read about are unrelated. I mean, one is in a synagogue. That's a public place. All the Jews could be there. Um, it's generally a quiet place, kind of formal. Anybody ever been in a synagogue service? I mean, full board? I, I was I got invited to a bar mitzvah when I was 13. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, but synagogues, you know, the synagogue, we had the, they had the party place in another room, and that was, that was wild. That was great. But the synagogue was pretty formal. As I remember it, it was like, it was just, you do the business at hand kind of a thing. So it's a more formal place. The other event is in a home, right? It's, it's private, but it's also a little more free, a little more interactive. You know, you might even have an argument or two going on at once. So they're very different environments, right? Very different environments. Um, but they, at, they do share some things in common as well. In both cases, the power of Jesus is made clear. His authority as the Son of God, is made crystal clear. They, they share that in common. And there's one more thing they share in common. And we're going to talk about that this morning. What they really share in common, in addition to the authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus, is the scope of his concern for humanity. Because he's at a point in his ministry when it's all about demonstrating who he is, what he has come to do, the power of the kingdom of God at hand. But at the same moment, he demonstrates his overwhelming compassion for the lost. Even as he's manifesting his power, his authority, he consistently demonstrates his compassion. And everything is done in compassion. In what I would call an extravagant compassion. We serve a savior who's extravagant in compassion. So let's look at these two events and then compare them a little more. First of all, the very first one, Jesus goes into the synagogue in verse 21. He immediately enters the synagogue. There's that word again we looked at last week. And again, that's not time. That's without obstruction, without interruption, just moving forward. Nothing holding him back, right? And he began to teach, and the audience reacts uh, as we might suggest they would. They're shocked because he speaks with authority. See, the usual rabbinical presentation would be you read the scroll, and then the rabbi would explain what it meant, and if anybody wanted to disagree, they would go aside in more of a quiet way, and they would, one would say they thought it meant this, another would say they thought it meant that, and it always came down to dueling rabbis. Because, you know, one person who thought it meant one thing would quote one dead rabbi who was famous. And then the guy on the other side would quote another dead rabbi who was famous. And so they exchanged rabbis back and forth, right? Jesus didn't do that. On numerous occasions, for example, in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is starting his ministry and he goes into the synagogue... And he reads from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he says, I'm it. They'd never heard something like that before. He didn't have to quote anybody other than Isaiah. And then he said, it's fulfilled right here in me. They had never heard anything like that. So this was shocking stuff. But it's an assertion of his identity. It's an assertion of his authority. It's an assertion of his power, right? As Jesus is doing this, a ruckus breaks out. A demon-possessed person begins to shout out, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, Pastor Joyce and I, we have, I think, maybe a little bit of a unique appreciation for this. 
um, the year that we were engaged, our last year, for second to last year in college, we attended a church in the um, Capitol Hill area of Seattle. It was a new church. It was an older, older structure, and it was literally surrounded with either mental hospitals or hospitals that had psychiatric wards. And there were a lot of street people. Again, this is like, you know, 40 years ago, so things have likely changed since then. But it was a really rough section of town, and you quite literally never knew what was going to come through the door of that church. Uh, it, was, it was a very open kind of a church, very open fellowship. People could just come, and it was not at all uncommon to have people come through the door right in the middle of the service with all kinds of stuff going on. And what impressed me so much as I observed the, the two, the two co-pastors there is the way they were able to maintain the, if you would use the word decorum or the order of a service, while at the same time extending the compassion of God. They were able to maintain order, deal with people dealing with all kinds of stuff. Some of it was chemical, some of it was biological, some of it was spiritual. These guys were good. And they were incredible. They would minister to these people. So it, it's, if you've been in that setting, I suppose some of you have been, where you're in the middle of a, you know, something, a church service or whatever, and somebody comes in and it's like everything is just chaos. They turn the whole place into chaos. So the person shouts out, Jesus, what do we have to do with you? And Jesus does two things. He rebukes the spirit. Now, our, our English translations, which say, be quiet, don't even come close. There's a lot of ways you can say be quiet in New Testament Greek. Some of them are nicer than others. And um, this is a very rare one. This is a very rare one. This is phimothiti. You almost have to scowl when you say it. Phimothiti. Right? Now remember, he's talking to the demon. He's not talking to the man. Right? Phimothiti comes from the verb or the noun phimo, which is a muzzle. So he quite literally says to the demon, put a muzzle on it. Now, click, light switch, demon stops, right? Then he says, come out of him, accept that. Now that is normally not a real powerful word. It just means come out. It has a wide range of, of emotive presentation. Um, from as simple as, you know, like, come out, come out wherever you are, right? Something like that. But when you put, uh, it's, a, it's kind of a weird grammatical thing, when you put on the end of it where you want the person or being, being spoken to, where you want them to leave, it changes it completely. For example, it's the difference between, you know, come out, come out wherever you are and get out of the bathroom right now. See, because you said in the bathroom, that changed the whole, the whole thrust of the thing, right? So when he says to the demon, come out of him, that is now, right now. And of course, we read what happens. Immediately, the man goes into convulsions, which only makes the situation worse. But then the demon leaves. Order is restored. And the people are back to going, we've never seen anything like this before. This man speaks with authority. Even the demons listen to him, right? That was the first one. Second situation, a few verses later, starts in verse 29. They've left the synagogue and they've moved to the home of um, Simon. It's a small village, Capernaum. It wouldn't have taken them long to get there. They get there immediately, he notes. 
And arriving, they go in the house. Why are they going in the house? Because it's time to eat. It's time to rest. They had a lot of activity in the synagogue, some pretty wild stuff going on. I would assume the disciples had some questions they wanted answered. Right? So they need some time apart. They go in the house. They're going to relax. They're going to eat. But there's a problem. And that is upon arriving in the house, they are reminded that Simon's mother-in-law is sick with a, with, a, with a fever. Literally burning up. That's what the word means. So she's extremely ill. That's brought to their attention. Now, when it's brought to her attention, we read in verse 31 that Jesus went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up so that she would, could serve them. Now, there's a couple of things here. We know that Jesus did not have to be physically present to heal. We have all kinds of examples in Scripture where somebody brought it to Jesus' attention that somebody was sick, and he, we went there, but also where he didn't go there. And then we got that great example of the centurion who said, don't even bother to come. I got this down. You say the word, my servant's field. Boom, it happened, right? It's fantastic. Jesus doesn't have to go there to heal. Jesus doesn't have to touch her to heal. In fact... It's rather unusual that as a rabbi, he did go to her, went into her room, rabbis didn't do that as a rule, and touched her. All of that is pretty much out of character for a rabbi to do, not the normal thing. But Jesus does that and raises her up. The fever leaves, and it says that she got up and served them. Now, we really, that's one with our American culture. I remember the first long time I read this, I thought, that's kind of low. I mean, this poor woman's been sick. She's had a fever. And great, you healed her, but to expect her to get up and feed you? I mean, that's, that is not the dynamic here at all. We're talking a Semitic Middle Eastern culture in which hospitality is an enormous responsibility. I don't know if there's any way to bring that into our American setting. The responsibility of a host especially a wife or mother, to care for the guests in her home is overwhelming. This is a shame-based culture, and the shame and guilt of having to lay in her bed, sick as she was, while there are guests in the home to be taken care of would have been overwhelming. That would have been as bad or worse than being sick. And I, I can't come up with a way to illustrate that, but I can assure you, it's having lived in the Middle East for as long as we did, it's real and it's true even today. Hospitality is overwhelming and the responsibilities of it. So when Jesus raised her up to health and it says that she came down and served them, that was every bit as much for her benefit as it was for them. All right? So those are the two instances, right? Jesus delivering a man of demon possession in the synagogue and then raising the woman up to health, right? What's the point here? Well, again, there's a lot that both have events have in common. They're both manifestations of Jesus' power. They both deal with major interruptions, barriers to what Jesus is trying to do. In the case of the synagogue, he wants to teach. And this guy is screaming at him. So he deals with it. He goes into Peter's home. They're all hungry. They want to eat. Want to relax a little bit. Mom's sick. Nobody can relax because mom's sick, right? Got to deal with it. They're interruptions, right? In both cases, Jesus does two things. First off, he ministers to the need in that he removes the interruption. He removes whatever was keeping them from doing what they were there to do. And in so doing that, 
shows his identity, his power, and his authority that reveal himself, that manifest the kingdom of God. In each example, his authority is made clear. Authority over demonic possession, authority over disease. That's the first thing he does. But in both cases, he also goes beyond the immediate crisis to minister to the personal needs of the person involved. Look, look at it this way, if you would. Jesus in the synagogue, he's preaching away, explaining who he is, teaching, sufficient that they're already figuring out this guy's not your garden variety rabbi, something else is going on here. He speaks with authority. This guy starts screaming, demonic manifestation. Jesus turns to the demon, yeah, put a muzzle on it. The guy goes silent immediately. Jesus has accomplished everything he needs to accomplish. If all he's trying to do is demonstrate his authority, deal with the interruption, get back to what he was doing, step one is sufficient. Step one is completely sufficient. I don't think anybody in the room is going to go, well, yeah, he made the demon shut up, but let's see if he can cast him out. No. Silencing the demon was sufficient to manifest his authority. He, and when he does that, when he shuts the guy up and puts him to he's quiet, calm, everybody in the room is happy, right? Because Jesus can get back to what he's doing. Everybody's fine, right? Except that guy. Because he's still got a demon inside of him. When he goes into Simon Peter's house, the exact same series of events. They go in the house. They find out, oh, we, dinner's, dinner's going to have to wait because Simon Peter's mother-in-law is really sick. Jesus can just say, okay, fine. No, go upstairs look again. She's fine. No, trust me, go upstairs, look, she's fine. They go upstairs, they come down, wow, fever's gone. She's perfectly well. She's resting peacefully. Who's not happy? Everybody's happy. Jesus has just manifested his authority, his power over her illness by healing her without even going into the room, without even bothering. Now we can all sit down and eat. Everybody's happy except Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Because now she's laying there with the shame of not taking care of her guest without a fever to blame it on. In both cases, Jesus does what? He goes beyond the immediate need. He goes beyond that which was absolutely necessary to demonstrate his power, demonstrate his authority, demonstrate his identity, show who he is, and we can all get on with the immediate. But in both cases, he goes beyond that to meet the need of the individual involved. First, the demonic possessed man, and then Peter's mother. He didn't stop at just solving the immediate problem. He found in each situation a way to genuinely bless someone, not just demonstrate his power. Because I don't know that we have an example in the New Testament where Jesus was satisfied with simply demonstrating his power, who he was in each and every case. He always blesses somebody. He always ministers to the need of a person. He doesn't just act with, with authority. He acts with compassion. And I know there are people in this fellowship who have a Christian experience which was defined by authority without compassion. And authority, even if it's based on an interpretation of Scripture, authority that is not connected to the compassion of Christ is not the kingdom of God. We've been saying all, all year to date, 
We're all about the manifestation of Christ's character in us so that we can manifest Christ's character in the world. If we're going to do that, we have to be able to act with the authority he gave us, and he gave us authority. The Great Commission is about his authority extended to his church. But if we would manifest the character of Christ, we dare not, we dare not attempt to manifest his authority if we're not prepared to manifest his compassion as well, to meet the very real needs of the people around us. His authority linked to his compassion is the only way to express his character. His authority connected to his compassion, the only way to manifest his character. So, ready opportunity for application. This Tuesday is Valentine's Day. How many of you saw a Valentine's Day message coming out of this? Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Now, I know some of you love Valentine's Day. It's a good day to go out and just do something wonderful for the one you love, and that's great. Go for it. Um, I know a lot of folks, they're not that big into it. It's like, oh, it's another day. I have to go out and spend money on something. Flowers, they're going to die, you know. <laughs> I understand that. And I understand that for some of you, Valentine's Day is just flat painful. It's just not something you wouldn't even think about, right? But, but, try this. This is especially for those of you, either you're not into it or you just, or just flat, it hurts, right? Make an effort to think of somebody you care about. Somebody who needs you. And find a way to extravagantly meet that need of that person. Find a way to bless you don't have to be married to him. You don't even have to be in your family. Find a way that you can meet the need of somebody who needs you in such a way that you blow them away. That you can minister to a need in their life that shows the extravagant love of Christ for them. Do Valentine's Day one better. Be extravagant with the ones who need you because that's what Jesus did and does. He's extravagant with us. Wesley put it this way, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? We serve a marvelously extravagant God. We have a marvelously extravagant Savior. If we would show his character, that must be included in the message. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for these two beautiful um, pictures that we have of, of the very beginning of our, of our Savior's ministry where he makes it so absolutely clear to us that even as he was about demonstrating his, his person, his power, his authority, the full package that was the Son of God on earth, he was careful in every incident, Father, to manifest his compassion for us because, Lord, that's what we needed. Father, when we come to you, Lord, and we hurt, we come to you, we have need. We come to you, Father, we're lost, Lord. We're, I'm so glad, Father, you don't simply address, you know, the, the problem and then send us on our merry way. But at the same moment, Father, you manifest your power in deliverance, your power in healing, your power in salvation, Father. You embrace us with your love. And you meet the very great deep need of our heart. Father, as we go out this week, let us 
do that and let us do it deliberately and to the full measure of our ability, let us do it extravagantly that people might see Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord this morning.